Hi, I'm Andalisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, we speak with Chef Phil Jones, member of Too Many Cooks in the Kitchen for Good, a collective providing food to nonprofit organizations. He is also the co-creator of Pharmacy Food, a subscription meal service that provides affordable and nutritious meals through sustainable practices. We talk about how he and his organization have been using plant-based foods to address food insecurity in Detroit and his own connection to the city he grew up in. But what we want to start is talking with you about pharmacy food because it's the biggest thing that you've been working on and now it's really has its legs under it and it's making such an impact. But I'd love you to talk about how it started, why you wanted to do it, and where it sits now. Okay. Well, um, pharmacy food is the coming together of a couple of concepts. A couple of years back, good friend Daniel Todd, who I work with on Make Food Not Waste, mm-hmm. introduced me to a young man who had this concept called pharmacy food. Uh, and our visions were very close and in alignment. He lived around the corner from a store pro- project that I was working on. And the goals were the same, um, trying to make a difference in black and brown communities, but using whole foods, using technology, using uh, infrastructure of good to make change in the food system. So we came together and then COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So my partner Kwaku and I had to do a little bit of a pivot uh, originally, we were going to do brick and mortar, and that just didn't seem to make a lot of sense <laughs> with the food industry being where it was and restaurants closing and not being able to open um, due to the restrictions. So we decided to kind of focus in on meal prep or um, meal plans and meal subscriptions. Uh, and in the meantime, we wound up being over at Marygrove in the conservancy there um, where we're the um, caterers of record. Uh, using the space to help generate and incubate other food businesses. And we saw over there a deeper need. Um, There are all these meal prep companies out there, Mm -hmm. so it's a crowded market. But we found that there are needs right here in our community that could be met more readily and then also give us a greater and more sustainable foundation for meal subscription in the future. We found that people in our community needed to start eating better making it more accessible, making it more radically affordable by taking and using the asset that we have here, a tremendous local food economy that is that makes up the nation's second most agriculturally diverse state here. So that's where we started. Um, we're currently fine-tuning our offerings. Um, we're working on our retail product and our catering and, and trying to put this community sensibility inside of it also incorporating workforce development, working with the city of Detroit and and some of the folks in some of the programming here. So we're also developing a line of retail products because we know that sustainability is going to be based on our being diverse. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot of things, um, but (laughs) but they're all one thing. Were you surprised at the response to pharmacy food to a community who has not always had access to this quality of food, how it was accepted and how it was viewed, and was it very welcome, or was this an educational process as well? Well, it's actually an ongoing process, Mm -hmm. and we're still getting our foothold in in trying to figure out how to best 
make the changes that we see a, a reality in our community. Um, one of the things that struck me is the reception by older black or brown folks mm -hmm. and the definite need for some interventions. We call it therapeutic nutritional intervention where we're doing things with food in order to make some changes in our, in our daily lives inside of our health. Um, some of it is very much in your face, this is healthy. And some of it's subtle. And one of those things that was real subtle is everyone loves ranch dressing. So we have a ranch dressing and it's actually vegan. And we've incorporated in um, turmeric, a, a mm -hmm. gosh awful amount of turmeric because we <laughs> want to also address inflammation in the body. So here's somewhere there's an intervention, but it's a tasty intervention. Um, another one of our salad dressings is our black bean, black bean vinaigrette which is high in protein, wonderful, flavorful, pays homage to black and brown um, food history, but it's just delicious and it's a simple way to get higher levels of protein in, in places with people who are more plant forward that you can get some of that protein that you think you're missing. Is this gonna be part of your retail line? Yes, it These is. These kinds of things? Yes, yes. Um, we do also do a line of fresh beverages, like um, just plain old fresh squeezed lemonade, but it's just lemons, water, and good sugar. Mm -hmm. And then we have something more complex with our hibiscus tea, which has other um, flavors and things infused into it. Our ginger turmeric tea, which also includes a little mullen with us. We call it our COVID drink because it will help clear up information and mm -hmm. really get you breathing and also also works with you in terms of your body and inflammation. So we've definitely got a product line coming out that we're going to make sure that everyone can get a hold of. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the numbers of people that you have cooked for at a time, which blows my mind, and how you were able to serve so much of the community at once. Can you talk a little bit about those stories that I found? Well, it's a person that cooks for maybe four people. Uh, <laughs> you cook for hundreds of people at a time. Yeah. And how that works and how that's been accepted and why you continue to do it. Um, we'll start at the end. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's not a, an easy road, but when the pandemic hit, I shifted into a different mode immediately. Like the March 11th, I had to cancel our summit for the Detroit Food Policy Council. March 12th, the first two cases of COVID were here in the state of Michigan. Also on the 12th, I had to get rid of hundreds of pounds of Impossible Burgers. So it just kind of shifted. Um, we started working together with some other folks in the community. It was Stephanie Bird over the block and floods. Chef G with Bangkok 96 and the Nascimentos over La Nascimento. And we had this thing called Too Many Cooks in the Kitchen for Good. Um, mm -hmm. Had to get out there and, and, and use up some of these restaurant products. And so um, me being high risk, I couldn't do a lot of the physical labor to have a lot of the interactions. But I was on the phone all the time. Mm -hmm. um, making the calls, making the connections, um, bringing together ingredients wherever possible. And then the team kind of put it together where, you know, everyone had their different um, roles and capacities. And we fed thousands of people working with a lot of good organizations. Like, like I mentioned earlier, Make Food Not Waste, Food Rescue U.S. Detroit, um, Hazone, just wonderful organizations all over the city with the one goal, and that was to take care of our people in a time of need. And 
Um, woke up one morning, a friend of mine said, do you have a need for three semi-trucks loads of cooked chicken? Wound up getting 111,000 pounds of cooked chicken meat that was in great condition, that was just sitting there in a warehouse. Um, you know, none of this was by myself. We, it took a lot of people, a lot of effort, and a lot of connections and collaborations to make it happen. And um, I'm just blessed to have some good friends with good hearts. Now, Chef, I know you uh, have quite a, you know, a diverse background with, like, the amount, I mean, whether it's Make Food Not Waste, large-scale organizations, you were the chef at Colors for a long time. Like, what, you know, and I know you kind of, you know, joked about, you know, not sure why you do this, but, you know, what does motivate you as a chef? Because, you know, you see a lot of chefs as they get older in their career, maybe winding things down, but you seem to have gone in the opposite direction. I feel like you take on more and have larger vision now than you did, you know, I'm, I'm assuming 10, 20, 30 years ago. Like, what motivates you? You know, is it is it the food insecurity you see? Do you feel like you have so much work to do and that's what keeps that carrot in front of you is that there's just so, such a large amount to do? Um, well, a reasonable level of sobriety helps, actually. <laughs> um, you know, as a young man, I, I partied, I played, and the, the world was my oyster. And, you know, um, it, it was about the final product. It was about ratings. It was about restaurant wars. And then there was this shift with that loaf of bread. Um, literally, I started to see my ministry had always been um, interested in the ministry. I'm actually an ordained Baptist deacon. Um, had considered going into it deeper um, all my life. And one day I just opened up to the reality of what it is, and it's food. If you look at Second Timothy, it says that deacons are the ones who serve the tables. And I finally realized that I was actually where I was supposed to be. Um, my community needs me. I'd always reacted to my community. My mother and grandmother used to tell the story as a child. They asked me what I wanted to be. And I wanted to be a rock and roll doctor with a large waiting room with a lot of seats. <laughs> um, wanted the rock star entertainment piece, wanted to help people. And I was raised to have manners, so I was always standing because you had, I had to give my, my seat to women. So <laughs> uh, that's why I, just, I wanted a large waiting room to take care of a lot of people. and. Once I got past myself, I've truly found myself. And um, and it's helping people with something that I was, is a God-given talent for me. Um, there are people who are more technically savvy in, in terms of their ability. There are people who can put together flavor combinations that are wild and wildly creative. I do a little bit of all of that. And I like to do it for people who might not always have that opportunity to experience these things. WDET celebrates 75 years of public radio with gratitude to our dedicated listeners. Listeners like you cherish community voices, local music, and independent journalism. This spring fundraiser, we're counting on your support, just as you count on us. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. I, I, when I was coming up in, in the industry, you know, 
I started learning about new ingredients, whether it was foie gras or caviar. But, you know, we have communities in Detroit that don't have access to, like, a diverse amount of vegetables. Even the, you mentioned the crops. You know, we are the second most agriculturally diverse state behind California. You know, like, how can somebody in Detroit, you know, whether it's the Detroit Food Academy or, you know, how can we build that bridge to the youth that wants to know more about food? Um, first, folks that are in the food world need to start telling our young folks the truth and, and stop painting this Food Network cooking channel reality that doesn't exist for most people. Um, we owe our food, we owe our communities, we owe it the truth, and we owe it the, the care and compassion that good stewards should have. And, and then I would say to young people, you're responsible for your past and your future. And so you're responsible to learn. Take some time, cook with your family, learn your family's recipes. Take some time and get your technical skills in line. Travel, do all those things that we weren't always encouraged to do. But in some cases we were, and you see those results. You see an Anthony Bourdain, you see a James Regato, you see folks who are able to incorporate the good into their life, but not have it be so overwhelmingly commercial that you lose the food. Um, honor food, grow your own. There's nothing more incredible than the season up your own tomato. Um, that's one of my childhood memories. I, I grew my first cherry tomato plant, took a pinch of salt, and I was hooked. Um, wasn't the most prolific farmer, but I started <laughs> growing food, and, and it always tasted better. Um, I was never a fan of eggplant until I grew one. Uh, get your feet in the dirt. Put your hands in the soil. Swipe a bug off your shoulder. Do those kinds of things, and you'll truly understand and appreciate the food. Talk to people about their food history. Study, 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 read write, create, cook always, find an excuse to always have a pot or pan or something in front of you or a knife, or a spoon or fork. Find other reasons to engage around food, draw about it, write about it, sing about it, do all these other things that are part of everyone's food traditions that we kind of overlook. And you'll understand how important food is and how important we can be for our food and our food system. That's some sage advice. Beautiful. Thank you. I know you do a lot. And I mean, I think most of the times I've seen you has been at, in the Eastern market in some capacity, but that is, you know, while we are absolutely in a food desert, I think that we're also blessed to have, you know, of, of a resource like the Eastern market. And, you know, I think that, you know, not everybody can obviously access the Eastern market when it's available, but that is something that makes Detroit special. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, you, you know, your history with the Eastern market goes, has to go back much longer than mine. Um, my history at Eastern Market came almost immediately with my interaction with Bioneers, and this was like 2007, 2008. Um, in 2009, I became a part of the Detroit Food Policy Council as part of the initial group that started that, and we were headquartered out of Eastern Market, so I was there on a regular basis just for those kinds of events and me being um, a market rat anyway, you know, this, uh, I 
had wonderful relationships over the years with folks like the Cimenteros and such. You know, Sal and Ann were like parents in, as I was coming up in the industry. Um, even just outside of the market, going to people's restaurant supply for, for decades now. Um, it, it was like home to me. You know, I started doing a lot of nutrition education there. Ultimately, my wife and I wound up running Red Truck for Produce for a year, year and a half there for them as a favor to the market, trying to get a green grocer established over in the, in the meat market portion. Um, holding seminars, workshops, uh, just going and shopping, you know. Yeah, when did you start shopping? When do you first remember shopping at the Eastern Market? Oh, 1976. <laughs> we used to hop in um, my godmother's station wagon. It was a <laughs> weekly thing for us. Um, you know, where else could you go in, in this time? And for two, three dollars, get a fifty-pound bag of, of potatoes. Yeah. And, you know, so it started pretty early. It was it was a weekly event for us. Um, over the years, I, I kind of got away from the market when I got into that that, that self-absorbed portion of my history and food. But then getting back into it with the Detroit Food Policy Council, working with people like Keep Growing Detroit on urban farming, and working with Oakland Avenue and D-Town Farms and all these people became my friends. And so Eastern Market became more social for me than anything after a while. Yeah. Um, it would be the only time that I could get out and enjoy myself because it was, I always worked. And this portion of my work never felt like work. Do you remember, was there a single ingredient that you, that you can remember, you know, being, when you're a kid, whether it's cooking or biting into it? You know, like for me, I remember my aunt had a big garden in the backyard and picking green beans and eating them raw. I remember I didn't realize you could eat them raw. You know, I was you know, obviously single digits. I was probably seven or eight. And it blew my mind that how sweet and delicious a raw green bean picked, you know, from the plant was. Is there a moment for you at the Easter market or maybe in someone's backyard the first time you, you said the cherry tomato? Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, you even younger. Do you remember seeing something at the Easter market and? and having your mind blown? Or was it your Caribbean well, history? Yeah, see, I, Eastern Market is wonderful, oldest, largest, and, and my home market now. But the market in St. Croix in itself, just visually, was, it's haunting. Um, mm -hmm. All the fresh fruits and vegetables, um, colorful things that we could just go and pick you know my earliest childhood memories are actually stopping on the side of the road and everybody had a machete even the kids and we would just <laughs> stop at the side of the road and chop down sugarcane wow and, and you know we could get mangoes and, and ganips or they call them spanish limes when they're in season and we should be like in the heart of that i think right now um these are things that just were outside of our doorsteps you know um we 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 swam in the fish market, so it's it's it, the the market itself and the visuals were the most stunning thing. Um, simple, but clean, honest, colorful, and vibrant, and, and it just exudes life. Um, there's a lot of things that aren't available from the island that has to be brought in, but a lot of the things that are on the island are spectacular. Is there anything you wish you saw more of here in Detroit? Is there anything you wish you saw more 
chefs doing, more restaurants doing? Like, what what do you think, you know, um, is a veteran chef of the community? You know, when you look at my, you know, chefs my age or the next generation, like, what do you wish we were doing more of or highlighting more, if anything? Um, highlighting black and brown folks that are in the food business for a lot of years. There weren't very many of us in management. I can count them on one hand and we know we know who they are we need for more black and brown youth to be recruited supported educated um exposed and and much more intentionally you know um, a lot of the food service programming that's out there is based on fast food and, and cashiers and such where we need scientists we need people who can go in and do the testing. We need people who can grow this food. We need people who can create new products and new systems that are black and brown. We need for food historians of color out there being pushed, being supported, being loved and nurtured. We need to tell these food stories not only for the financial and racial equity, but for the health benefits. Our ancestors knew what cured them. Our ancestors ate the foods that made them feel better. We've gotten away from that. We've gotten to the point where we think our chemicals work better than just going outside and planting the good stuff. And we're wrong. It's, we need to get black and brown folks into that space. And we need for black and brown food to not be demonized and vilified. Um, all we see are the negative aspects out there and we don't ever hear about the positive things that black and brown folks have contributed to food. Um, black and brown folks have been the griots, the culinary griots for a lot of cultures because of enslavement, because of servitude, and because of just um, colonization and all the isms. And we need to take time now and build up black and brown food and there's a lot of good reasons. Um, but a lot of it is health. A lot of it is financial security and equity. A lot of it is spirituality and culture. And all these things, I think, will go a long ways to improving our community. That's well said. It's pretty great. Is there any, is there any um, organizations you know of right now in the city that you are excited about or are doing um, some of the, the recruiting you're talking about? Well, by mere activity, um, my good friends at the Taste of Diaspora are doing some great storytelling, some great advocacy work. Um, that's Chef Idrick Goudet, Chef Jermon Booz, and Raphael Wright, who has a neighborhood grocery going on on each side, telling the story of the diasporic movement of food, um, exposing our folks to other black and brown food operators here in the city, sharing this wealth of of, of of good food movements and, and, and activities with other people of color. And I think that their work is extremely important. Um, we've got a lot of black and brown folks opening up restaurants that deserve more media attention. You know, we, we sit here and we squabble back and forth about how many black folks there are in the city, but still the majority, but you don't hear about black and brown restaurants and food tastemakers at the same rate as there is in terms of numbers of populations here. And so equity, I think, is extremely important. I think that showing the beauty of, of black and brown food culture has its benefits. Some shows like High on the Hog, just wonderful food stories that are coming out. They need to be shared, you know. Um, it's, it's a rich, rich, rich history that 
deserves its place out there and out there in the world in is, Bullshit. is there any uh restaurants or uh you know bars opening up right now that you're most excited about when you mention you know some of these uh, tastemakers that are that are that are doing new ventures is there um, any, is there anywhere that comes to mind that you want to you know that you're excited about there are a ton of them and i'm i'm Probably the worst restaurant <laughs> reviewer and, and, and celebrant of, of new things, but I, I do want to give flowers to a place that's been doing some great food, and young chef um, Chris McClendon over at Savannah. Awesome, Blue. yeah, Chris is great. Mm-hmm. Great young man, creative. He's got this sexy breakfast thing going. Yeah, I saw that. Just I, I, I believe that him and his work deserves the attention. Um, if we just took the time and just did a little research for themselves, we would find a ton of different places that are popping up here. Um, like I said, I'm not probably the best advocate because I don't go out. But. Right. No, I mean, I know Petty Cash is a new spot that opened yes. up. I'm really excited for those guys over there. Yeah, they're doing some great things. Um, not necessarily a vegetarian place, but being very plant forward, excuse me, and being creative in terms of presentation and such. Um, not doing the same things. And right. I think that that's one of the things that it's really incumbent upon black and brown chefs. Don't get caught in a loop. Um, there's so many different subvariants of cuisines. There's so many more ingredients. It's not all just soul. It's not all just Southern. It's not all just one thing. It's so many different techniques. There's so many different ingredients. You know, we have our Afro mestizos. We have black and brown communities that aren't just Mexican. We have a history due to diasporic trade trade routes where South America is ripe with black and brown bodies from Africa that came directly through there. You know, we we forget about those things and forget about those cultures and cuisines that are closely related to us. And, you know, it, it, and also be able to take advantage of this financially. You know, um, these are ingredients that can be wildly popular that are out there. We use an ingredient called Fonio, West African grain, um, deeply, richly nutritious. It's equally nutritious as rice, if not better. Cooks in five minutes. It holds whatever flavors you want. It's profoundly better for the planet because of its deep root structures and it's easy to grow and we need to support those kinds of things and tell those stories. Yeah, well said. Is there anything else? Uh, Do we work- miss anything? Yeah, are you working on anything else you want to touch on or is there anything else we didn't shine enough light on? Um, got a couple new locations coming. Um, we're out of the Michigan Life Science and Innovation Center in Plymouth. We'll be moving into Chroma Building here on West Grand Boulevard. Um, just working more closely to develop overreaching, overarching systems and processes that not only help our business, but help others that are like us that are trying to grow larger food system changers and trying to document our work and show that we can do it. We can make a change. We can be healthier. We can actually nutritionally intervene in our lives in a way that's affordable. Um, We have a tiered pricing system that allows for seniors, um, students, teachers, um, homeless, and um, veterans 
we we offer our entire food lineup for forty percent off. We're not oh. trying to make a oh. buck off of these folks. They've been exploited for too many years, and if we can just make enough to keep feeding them and making great meals for them and exposing them to a better way forward financially and health wise, we'll do it. That's the most important thing. Our thanks to Chef Phil Jones for joining us. Thanks to you for listening and... We would like to thank LaMarca Prosecco for their support. From the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in a spritz or drinking straight. Essential Cooking is produced by me, and Alisi, along with my co-host, James Rigato. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Connor Anderson, with production support from David Lyons and Patrick Burness. Original music by the Mallet Brothers. Essential Cooking is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station.